Well, I'd like to welcome you all to our, our second session here this afternoon. Did everybody get a copy of the notes? Uh, we've got a stack back there. Yeah. Just for introduction's sake, because I probably don't know a good percentage of you, my name is Lanny Hubbard. I'm one of the instructors here at PBC. Uh, been here for, let's see, Martin Luther. Yeah, he was, and, and Ken, Ken and I have been around. Ken's been around for uh, almost 50 years now, about 47. I've been around for about 50, 43, so we've been here a long time. And uh, I've got students here. I've got people that are showing up to the conference that were my students two and three decades ago, you know. <laughs> You know you feel your age. It was last year, first time. I, I have students now that at the college that I taught their parents when they were single, you know, and they came before. Then they got married, went home, raised kids, sent their kids back. But last year, for the first time, I had the third generation. I taught the grandfather, I taught the father, and then I taught the son. And at that point, I said, that's the trinity. I'm leaving. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm out of here. So. Well, welcome to our session. It's a, really a delicate session, and we're going to be delving into it, going into a lot of different factors in it this afternoon. This is a growing issue. Uh, I just read a report the other day, about three days ago. Uh, I was on CNN National Poll. It says the number of young people that are identifying with the LGB community now has hit over 5%, and that's up for about 40% from what it was two years ago. And it's a phenomenon. It's become a tidal wave, especially among a certain segment of the youth population. And I don't know how many of you have encountered that. You've had young people come into your youth group, and they're either gay or they're trans or in their process of transitioning and so forth. And so it's a real problem. It's a real issue, and we have to approach it with great grace, great love. Uh, we'll talk about it in a minute because there are approaches of different Christians to it that are not reaping any fruit whatsoever. They're only worsening the problem. And we need to approach it with great wisdom and understanding. So we're going to try to hit a lot of it today. Now, you've got a big pile of notes. There's probably almost nine, ten pages there. We're not going to cover all that, okay? Uh, we will refer to it, but we're not going to take, you know, five minutes on each point. When I do notes for a conference session, I usually try to write notes that are a resource. There are things that you can take with you. And there's going to be information on here that you can go back to later. I've given you some ideas. I'm going to recommend some books. I'll recommend some things that you can do just so you can continue to study the topic on your own after you leave here. But I'd like to pray today as we start, just asking God to really help us as we go through this very delicate and very personal topic here. And So join me, if you will. Father, we just thank you. We just thank you again for the, the privilege that you've given to all of us as we work with your people and the tremendous honor of pastoring and working and shepherding your flock in different capacities. And So, Father, I just pray that as we talk today and share ideas that you would plant seeds in all of our lives to help us to know how to relate to these people as they come. They're looking for you. They're looking for the help and the salvation that you provide. And and Lord, we want to be able to service them as best we can. So guide our time and let it be productive now. We just pray in your name. Amen. For two millennia now, we, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ has faced challenges, a number of them. And that is that we find ourselves at odds with the culture in which we sit. 
And the difference between where the church is at and the message of the kingdom in there and what we're facing in our culture will vary. There's going to be times that the, the difference between us and the culture is going to be political. I mean, you see the first century back there, the church was a religio illicita, was an illegal religion, was not recognized by the Roman state, and so Christians were killed for political crimes, and that was their adversary. There have been other seasons now when you find that the church is at odds with society over moral issues because society had accepted a lifestyle that Christians believed was contrary to what the Bible told them they could live, and so they'd run into that. You find at other times, though, that the, the opposition that came out of them was philosophical, and that is that the worldview of the Bible is very different than the worldview of different cultures down through it. And, and so, just like Paul in Acts 17, when he was in Mars Hill and he was debating with the Epicureans and the Stoics, he ran into a worldview conflict. They believed that there was no afterlife. He did, and right off the bat, they're going to hit a brick wall with each other. And so different enemies are, we have faced, different opposition or pressure we have faced. Interestingly enough, though, in this current day, all three of those are against us. We're finding that the political realm is turning along with the educational so that now they are viewing the Christian message as hateful. They are viewing it as antagonistic and so forth. And so there are movements out to try to silence the Christian voice in public education, in media, and so forth. We're being ridiculed. We're being vilified in some settings and so forth. You're finding also that when you go down and you look at the area of philosophical, the Christian perspective is being made to look stupid. Uh, TV shows right now, police shows that will used to be hate crimes, and the basis of most hate crimes was racial, and so you'd have a, a hate crime against somebody because they were Latino or because they were black. Nowadays, you see it, and there's a hate crime, but the villain now is not this dark, raving psychopath. The villain is a fundamental Christian, and he, you know, he's speaking out against a, a gay individual and so forth, and so the media is stereotyping Christians to be this maniacal, mindless group of people that are going out. And we have to realize that because it's very easy to step right into that if we're not careful. And so we're facing almost a perfect storm today out there as we look at this. And along with that, what we're also finding is, is this, that Christians, as they face uh, the argumentation, the social media and everything else, find themselves in a dilemma. And that is this, and I hope you realize uh, you hear the term postmodernism, but let me give you a characteristic of it. One of the characteristics of postmodernism is to prevent, present a thought or an ideology in such a way and so complicated that people cannot respond to it in simple truth. And the reason for that is so that we can no longer claim to have a truth, an objective truth, an absolute. And the minute you try to present an absolute, whether it's a moral absolute or a biblical, there are all these other little groups that will attack it and undermine it. And to be honest with you, most Christians don't know what critical theory is. They don't know what queer theory is. They don't know what intersectionality is. And so they'll talk to somebody and they'll get four people and they don't know how to answer the questions. And down through the ages, this has been one of the great challenges that we as believers have, that is, and we see it back in the day of, of the Enlightenment when the philosophers Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Jean-Paul Sartre and Voltaire began to articulate their godless stuff, Christians didn't have any answers. 
And so Christians felt overwhelmed by the wisdom of the world, and they caved. They gave in. And you see some of this stuff. Even Charles Darwin, I told my class the other day, he studied to be a clergyman. He studied theology, but when he was on the Beagle, he could not answer the questions of the sailors, and he lost his faith. And so it's very important that we not only understand the Scripture, but we also come to a place where we have answers to the people who ask us in our culture. We exegete our culture. We understand the times. We understand the ideological shifts so that we don't get caught up in these dead-end streets, but we stay on firm ground where we know we can stand. We've got some absolutes that we can work with. And so we're living in a, a very crucial time right now. And, and because of social media and because of what's happening in society right now, what we are finding in this is true. An increasing number of people in our society are facing now a tension between what they're feeling in themselves, in what they think they are in their mind, their identity, and what they see in their physiology. And so we're ending up with more and more people that are going through, and the formal name for it used to be called a gender identity disorder. That's what it was called. Gender identity disorder, that means that a person now, what they think in their mind they are and what they see in their body do not line up. That big full name has been given over to gender dysphoria. And dysphoria simply talks about the clashing now between who I think I am in my mind and what I am in my body. And this creates a tension. So I may think I'm a girl in my head, but my body is male. What do I do with that? We enter into what's called cognizant dissonance. I'm constantly in a state of tension, and I don't know what to do with it. And that's why a lot of young people, when they face this, they say, well, the only way out of it is to get them all to say the same thing. I can't change my mind because that's the way I feel, so let me go to the doctor and change my body so that my body and my mind are lining up, and hopefully that will get rid of the dysphoria, the tension that is there. Because if dysphoria is not dealt with, it, it creates anxiety and depression, and people plummet down, and you'll find that the suicide rate among this group of people is very, very high. Why? Because they can't solve this angst, this pain that they're feeling inside. And that's one thing, because the gospel primarily is there to what? It's preach the gospel of the people who are hurting. It's to give them hope. It's to go to those people who are locked up in the stuff in their head. And so we have a great message. We just have to know how to use it. It's because of this situation that we've got now and, and all that's taking place around us that you're here today. Because in education, anytime somebody would start a teaching session or a session of skill-based, the first thing you want to know is, why do we need to know this? It's the big why question of education. It starts off because students will come to class and say, why do I have to study this? Am I going to use this in life? Am I really you need to know this? Well, for you, the answer is, yes, you're really going to use this in life. You're going to run across people that face it, maybe a family member, whatever, but you are. And so that's the why, because he's going to send you out as sheep among wolves. And you're going to be out there and you're going to run into all kinds of stuff and to be prepared a little bit ahead of time for what you're going to run into so that you can know how to talk and it doesn't turn into a big argument all the time and so forth. That's why we're here. So we're going to try to get some answers for you. Now, in your notes, you'll find that the first section there, the first heading in your notes, is now what is our current cultural situation. And we'll just throw a few things at you real quick so that you understand this. The first thing is this today, is the media is just against us. 
uh, all the way around, and that the media is there, and it's in all forms. It's in movies, it's in music, it's in printed material, and so forth. And so I've just given you some examples of the media that's there. Printed publications, especially nationally syndicated magazines and so forth, cover articles. I remember uh, several years ago, cover article, the woman of the year was Caitlyn Jenner. She was the woman of the year. Well, we knew her as Bruce Jenner, who was the Olympiad, you know, but you see it on the front page of magazines. The New York Times, the Washington Post, Times Magazine, they present more and more, and they present the transsexual, transgender lifestyle as totally acceptable and normal. Those are the terms that they're using for it. And as our culture reads this and they get acquainted, over a period of time, just gradually, they begin to believe that must be true. This is normal. This is the way it was meant to be at this point. You find also with your television and movies and so forth, you go out and you find there that, like I mentioned earlier, Christians are often viewed as bigoted. It's a rare show that shows an understanding pastor or a priest. Most of them are crazy or they're demented or they are pedophiles or whatever, but to have somebody that actually is a pastor in a clergy position, and they show that now, uh, in a healthy way, is a very rare situation. We see it also in the Internet. Now, the Internet has become one of the biggest promoters of this because there are websites there now where a young person can go with no supervision, take a three-question test, and the Internet will then tell them whether they tend to be transsexual or not in their nature. Take a three-question test to figure out if you're trans. Well, the whole thing's loaded, and so at the end of it, you hit certain things, answers, and it's going to come back, yeah, we think you're trans. And suddenly now, because you're a teenager and you're not talking to your parents, the computer tells you who you think you ought to be. And the influence of this is becoming increasingly heavy, especially you find as kids who are, are close to this period of time where they're thinking about transition, they spend a lot more time on social media and on the Internet. Some of these kids are spending four hours a day. And guess what? All those hours of the day, they're getting flooded with this stuff that says you're not who your body says you are at this point. And it's okay to experiment with this. It's okay to run that way. So it's just a, a tidal wave coming in. Social media is just crazy. Social media, and we'll look at it a little bit later, what is happening in social media with group chatting and things like this and the social pressure that's coming to young people. It has really created a, a landslide of stuff to the point now that it, it's telling them on there that experimenting with your gender is totally normal. Do whatever. And that's why today on some public forums, when you identify your gender, there have to be as many as 56 different alternatives to who you are. Because why? You can be this, you can be this, and they're presenting them with all kinds of options, even though the Bible says, let us create them in our image, and he created them male and female. They had two, okay? They just two. The third option was a snake, and we're going to kill him. All right, you know, we go in, but just, you know. So they go through this whole thing, and so everything that's coming through the wire and the printed media is now beginning to lean very strongly this way, and we need to know it. Also, the professional realm. This is their second section. Your healthcare workers, your doctors, your school counselors. We've got a young gal now that's at PBC, and she's finishing up her senior year. She works in a social agency, and when she interviewed for the job, they told her young people will come because she's in 
kind of a mentoring, uh, counseling type capacity. And they said, young people will come and they will tell you that they're going through dysphoria. And you, because of your job, have to affirm that. You can never contradict it. You have to. That is a job requirement. It's a placement requirement. You know, and these, it's a challenging thing. You see these hurting kids out there and they said, I think I should be a guy. Oh yeah, I think you're right. When you know it's gonna probably hurt them really bad. And so the professionals are out there. The doctors, we look at this, there are doctors who now will do this transition for young people and so forth because they're afraid that if they don't, they'll lose their licenses. There's a lot of pressure through medical boards and hospital staff, the protocol that doctors are forced to perform certain things like this and the transitional things, and they're afraid. They're afraid of what will happen if they do. And so gender affirmation is the key word that's there. And what is even worse is that doctors and school counselors now are free to give advice and even treatment without any parental notification. Here in the state of Oregon, a 15-year-old can go in and get a hormonal replacement therapy without letting her parents know, her, their parents know that they're going through it, 15. So they're right there in the middle of all that hormonal stuff, there's a lot of confusion anyway, and guess what, their school counselor can say, I think you should go get this, this, that, and mom, don't, mom and dad don't even know about it. And so there's counselors that are there. You notice Medicare and insurance companies, the medical insurance companies are being pressured to provide now for transitional and reconstructive surgery in young people. Even though it's not life-threatening, it's not a condition, a real health condition, it's a preferential thing, and yet the insurance companies are being forced and mandated to cover our kids who want to go through transition at this point. Even in the military, you're going to find this, the military are, are just getting pushed. They are forced now to put transgender people into very, very sensitive issues of small combat recon groups and so forth. I served in the military, okay, I know this. And I know that when you're in a combative situation, what you need is to be able to trust the person next to you that they've got your back, they've got your six. But when you're fighting with each other over issues like this, there is a demoralization in a combat situation which is devastating. The civilians do not understand that, but when the lead is flying, you understand how much you have to trust the person that's next to you. And that's a very real thing in the armed forces, and our young men and women are facing that over there right now. And yet the curtain is being lifted and so forth. And so this is an area now that you're seeing some of that, that change come in. Uh, the trans community, the lobbying forces, this is a huge thing. It's a growing industry out there. These are pro-lobbying forces that push the trans lifestyle out there. You'll find them on the internet. And you'll see increased accusations that are there. They will use very derogatory terms, the homophobic, uh, heteronormality, uh, the queer theory that you're going to hear out there and so forth, where they say all oh, these straight-laced people, the heteros or the binaries, are saying now that this is the only normal lifestyle and that we're not. And they're really attacking that. They're really coming against that. And you're seeing that. Uh, universities, colleges, now that's, you've been hearing it, you saw it in the promo today when Sarah was up there and doing it about the number of young Christian kids that go off to college and lose their faith. I hope you realize what's happening in school right now. The censorship that is taking place in our universities is amazing. If you don't believe me, you need to read a book. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind. How many have read it? Oh, you need to read it. And make sure your blood pressure medicine is handy, all right, when you do. 
It's talking about the fact that on university campuses all across the country, if students don't want to hear a teacher teach something, they will shout them down and shut them up. And if they won't, they will go to the administration and have them fired. They demand safe places on campus. So if they have a guest speaker come in and talk on an issue that they don't want to hear, they demand rooms that are over here with blankets and milk and soft music and stuffed animals to go play in. These are college kids. They want safe places. Why? Because they have gotten to the place in our culture where they cannot hear anything that's contrary to the lifestyle that they have chosen. They cannot be self-critical, and so they, they attack it, and they vandalize things. They have people fired and so forth. It's amazing what's going on out there. People are relieved from their position. Even tenured professors are relieved from their position. Why? Because they will teach on a topic that a young person doesn't want to hear. And it's amazing what's going on, and these are our safe places. It used to be that we would censor the radical people, but now the Christians are being censored in the university. It has flip-flopped since the 1920s with the Scopes trial where we censored a teacher, a science teacher, teaching evolution. But now you would be censored if you even suggested intelligent design in a science class and so forth. So the censorship there is there. Um, they separate the kids from the parents. There were counselors who will actually tell young people, do not tell your parents what you're getting here. So you're removing children from their major social support system and saying, don't let them know what's going on. Medical and psychological positions are going to be relieved here. This is number four. If you have not read the story of Paul McHugh, you need to. You need to Google him. He's, his name I put in there, and Ken Zucker also. One is uh, uh, from the U.S., the other is from Canada. Paul McHugh was the head of the psychology department at John Hopkins University for 26 years brilliant man, everything else. He was relieved from his position because he taught that dysphoria was a mental disease. And they kicked him out of his job. Ken Zucker was the same thing. He taught up in the gender studies, identity studies in Toronto. He went to work a Monday morning and his desk was cleared off. Why? Because of the stuff that he was publishing. He considered a lot of the dysphoria to be in conjunction with mental problems and other diseases that were there, and that is not popular in the community. And you'll see it out there. There are also laws that are out there being formed, and you have sexual orientation, gender identity laws. There are laws now that you cannot speak against them. You cannot fire them. They're the equal opportunity, equal rights laws, and so forth that we'll find. This is what's being in, put in place now by the lobbying groups that are there. The philosophical, our next group is what has enabled now the current cultural situation. What has enabled? Why has our population changed? Why has the mindset of our people? It seems like it's changed so radically in the last 40 years. What has contributed to that change? Well, the first part is philosophy. Philosophy, and it goes down to our worldview and everything else. We, it used to be that education, or what we'll call it's the branch of philosophy that involves learning. It's called epistemology. It's the study of how we learn. And it used to be that the main focus of epistemology was we learn by objective things, standards, observations. You observe things, you go to a science room, and so forth. But now what we're finding is learning is switching from objective to subjective. And you may not realize how far this is swinging right now. They are in some school district questioning mathematics because they think that 2 plus 2 equal 4 is too narrow. They want to give students more possibilities. 
So now they are telling that two plus two could equal five. And so even in areas that we used to be concrete and we relied upon the concreteness of that for physics and chemistry, now we're questioning any absolutes even in mathematics and science. And so this is what's coming across right now. And that's all because of a shift in our philosophy of education. How do we learn? The metaphysical realm, very crucial. We have entered into a realm of what we call extreme dualism. We can thank Uncle Plato for this. He started the whole ball rolling about 2,600 years ago. Plato taught an extreme dualism in the universe, an area of ideas and an area of material forms that were down here, and the two were very separate. And the best one is the areas of ideas. And so he, being a philosopher, says, let's go into the area of ideals up here and so forth, even to the depriving of the physical and the material, because that is not important. That extreme dualism now has come down into our society, and so now what has happened is what you think in your head you are is more important than what your body is. The material is diminished now because what is in the area of ideas now has become superlative in all of this. So we've come to an extreme dualistic nature philosophically, and this is amazing what has happened. So that being the case, this no longer is the temple of God. This is now the jail in which I live. And instead of this being the temple of God, and I'm a steward of my body, and God has given me by my body and I take care of it, now it's at my mercy. I can do with this whatever I want, whatever's consistent with my subjective mind. It's a radical form of dual, but it's nothing other than Gnosticism. It's Gnosticism from the first century, which said the area of the ideas is important, the area of the body is not. Evolution is another issue that's in your notes. Evolution has started in the science lab, but it went into the philosophical room because evolution teaches one thing. Nothing is stationary. Everything is in process. So the values or the ways that we used to look at gender, even 40 years ago, they have to be mercurial in nature. They have to be fluid in nature. So we cannot look at gender and sexuality the same way we did before. Because why? We are evolving. We see things more completely than we did four years ago. And so just as biological evolution led to process theology, it has also led to process in our understanding of ourselves as human beings. So we're constantly in change. We're constantly flucked. There are no eternal standards. Friedrich Nietzsche said this, there are no eternal truths. Nothing is true forever. It may be true in a season, but then it will become obsolete. Jean-Paul Sartre says this. It says, there is no human nature because there is no God to have a conception of it. See, creation says we are the conception, the image and likeness of God. But if there's no God, then there's nothing to determine what the human image should be. And so we can come through man is nothing else than what he makes himself. People now are to leave old standards behind. And John Paul Sartre said this, we are ever creating and recreating ourselves. We are creating ourselves in the image of what we think we are. So when we do, do away with absolutes and standards, we're left with this amazing thing. And I, I gave you guys a, a quote here from G.K. Chesterton, who's just fun. If you're not used to G.K. Chesterton, he'll just make you think. You'll get mad and everything, but that's fine. He says, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. That's scary. But he has another quote that goes in side by side with that, and he says this. It's the first effect of not believing in God 
that you lose your common sense. That is the first effect that is there. The Bible says it this way in Psalms 14. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, and they are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds, and there is no one who does good. Psalms, 100, or Psalms 10 verse 4 says this, the wicked in his haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. And I like the old King James, not because I'm a King James fan, but I like it. It says this, God is in none of their thoughts. And we live in a generation when people are trying to figure out, am I a guy or a girl or whatever? God is in none of their thoughts. What did God make me? Who am I designed to be? What is God's opinion of manhood and femininity and so forth? You see in Romans chapter 1, verse 28, it says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, they just didn't want to give him the time of day, it says this, that they go on and says, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which now are not proper. Why? They don't give God any time. God's in none of their thinking process, and we see that. The area of ethics, our values, our morality, and so forth, uh, those are, it's an area of philosophy that determines, it's called axiology, what is the areas of what we value, what we think is more important out here, and so forth. And I'd like to recommend a book to you. This is not a Christian book, but you'll survive, okay? Um, it's a book that was actually written about 1948-49 by a, an English teacher at the University of Chicago. Uh, Keepeth a dictionary and a thesaurus handy, okay? The guy's got an unbelievable vocabulary and right through, but it's called Ideas Have Consequences by Richard Weaver. And the point that he is making in there, and the, the introductory chapter is a masterpiece. It's an absolute classic, and he shows this. What happens the minute we lose certain values in our society? What is the trickle-down effect, and what do we eventually come into? He wrote this in 1948, but you could print it in the front page of our newspaper today. He's not a Christian. He's what we call a social prophet. He reads sociology, he reads human trends, and he can predict the future as accurately as a thus saith the Lord because he's got thousands of years of history that says when people get to this point, this is the next step. And so he goes down through it and he says, we'll get to a day when people cannot recognize their decadence. And because they can't recognize their decadence now, they will be optimistic about who they are. And not only will they be optimistic, but you can't ever correct them. Have you ever tried to talk to somebody and, boy, they just blow up because it's like you're attacking their whole personhood when, in fact, you're just trying to help? But we've come into a generation that refuses to be corrected. And that is huge out there. We see that in the streets out there. Uh, you see also aesthetics. This is an amazing thing. It's a branch of philosophy that has to do with beauty. And as I told uh, a class one time I was talking to before, you know, what is beauty? How do we determine beauty and so forth? We read Genesis 1, and God looks at things and said, Behold, they're very good. But you look at a young, world, a young teenage girl who doesn't like her femininity, and she goes through transition, and she goes through hormone replacement, and she ends up with 5 o'clock shadow and two scars on her chest because she's had a mastectomy, and this is now beauty. And this is what has happened. Look at what happens to so many of our young girls because of self-hate. Scarring, gouging, cutting, 
anorexia. Why? They don't like the person that they are. And so because they don't like that person, they're going to try to improve it. They're going to try to do something so that they can be accepted and improved and so forth, and only to find that after they put all that money into it, they're more unhappy than when they started because they really haven't found the secret to life, and that's our creator. Our values, our morality, all of this. And so we get down and we find all of these things have been contributing now to the dilemma that we're in. Our sociology, this is an amazing one I've given you there. Our sociology is how we get along as people, how we relate to people, how we talk to people. Our sociology in the last 15 years has changed because of a little invention. This little guy, okay? Our whole opinion of ourselves and how we evaluate ourselves and how we picture ourselves, Banning talked about it this morning. We go on social media and what we do is we give out edited pictures of ourselves. We don't let people see our flaws. But you can't hide the flaws that are there. And so young people now, they see their flaws and whatever, and guess what? They don't like them. They don't want people to see them. They want to change them and so forth. Why? Because of comparison, competition, all that that comes through. You know, the bullying, that cyberbullying that's happened now. People, young people that are suicidal now because they are disliked. Everybody dumps them in one day. They lose all their friends. And suddenly they feel totally alone. This is what social media has caused. It has fostered this coming out. And say so the traditional roles have been violated. And this condition is so serious that back in 1995, as we were just starting to get into this, Pope John Paul II made a declaration in one of his, his the Catholic journal now, uh, called The Gospel of Life. And he wrote this. He says, we live in a day of a culture of death. And that's, that's his term. And every major newspaper, the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, they all picked it up. The Pope is saying that we live in a culture of death. And the reason is this, because everything that fosters life, cooperation, love, acceptance is going out. And people are consumed by their own, you know, progression where they're going. And we see abortion, we're seeing euthanasia, we're seeing, you know, uh, stem cell research and raising embryos for the purpose of destroying them themselves. Death is all around us. So are we, why are we so amazed when our young people are flirting with death? When they're pumping their bodies full of chemicals that they know will probably kill them in about 20 years. It's because of an atmosphere that we live in. There's a shroud over it. It says, Isaiah, back there, Isaiah actually referred to it. It says, this people has made a covenant with death, but it will not save them. They have broken their covenant with God, and they make a covenant with death. And so we live in an amazing time right now when you go down and uh, under the, your media there, and I, I'm skipping things. I know I've got to. I'm watching my clock here. Under the media, we have social media and dislike. There is a lady, and I'd like you to email her. I'd like you to, not email, but I'd like you to go online into the Internet, and I'd like you to Google her and read some of her stuff. Her name is Lisa Littman. L-I-T-T-M-A-N. Lisa Littman was a professor. She dealt with psychology and behavior down at Brown University. And she did a study of uh, several hundred young people that had gone through transition. And they had changed their gender and so forth. They had gone through that. And her whole purpose was trying to figure out what are the forces now that have led these people, these 
young people into making these drastic changes, she wrote a paper and she came up with her conclusions and it was banned. The university threw it out. Because why? It suggested the fact that a lot of this now is influenced by social media in our day. She influenced and said, these really, these people that feel the urge to change their gender, it's not because of a real internal motivation. They've just been pressured and bullied by social media that they need to change. And she made those suggestions, and her articles that she called is called Rapid Onset Gender Dysphoria. Rapid Onset Gender Dysphoria, which means this. A lot of these young people now that are deciding to change have not thought that way very long. They came to this opinion almost overnight. And the question is, why? You were a normal kid for so many years. Why is it that almost overnight you're unhappy with who you are? And she goes back, and she's been on national talk shows. She said, it's social media. It says somebody's got friends, and they start talking about, oh, I'm going to go through transition. And suddenly, this young teenager feels the pressure to do it. Otherwise, they can't be a member of the group anymore. And so they're pressured into this, and she says, and our young ladies are the ones that are suffering the most. Young ladies are most vulnerable to the opinions of their peers that are out there, and they've got a whole lot to lose here at this point. See, when the kids get dissatisfied with who they are, girls and boys act out differently. Girls go into self-destructive mode. Young boys act out, and they do stuff. Vandalism, get involved in crime, and so forth. But the girls become self-destructive. And you see that, and so she's gone on national talk shows. Her paper, like I say, was banned, but you know what happened? She resubmitted it to the National Board of Science and says, you find where I didn't follow the protocol of scientific investigation and statistics. They went through her paper and said, we can't find it. Your results are accurate. Brown University resubmitted it, and you should have heard the, the flurry of complaints from all over the place. You can't do that. Yes, we can. She followed the rules and her findings are accurate. So read what she says. Read the admonition that she has with parents as she talks to them. And the statistics she came up with is this. The majority, two-thirds of the young people that decided to go through trans were already going through treatment on other mental disorders before they got there. They were troubled kids. They were dealing with depression. 80% of them were dealing with depression before they ever decided to do that. And later we'll recommend another source in just a minute. And he will say this, parents need to know that before a child should go into transitional or anything else, go in for psychiatric treatment first and just find out where's the source of angst, where's the source now of, uh, you know, that's troubling them. And one writer, if you haven't read Leonard Sachs, you need to. Leonard Sachs has written a great book. He's a medical doctor. He's a PhD in psychology. He's worked for 30 years in the area of gender identity and so forth. He knows it medically. He knows it sociologically. I believe he's Catholic, but the book is not coming from a religious perspective. It's coming from medical, psychological. And he will say this. If you will counsel these young people, 80% of them that feeling dysphoria will grow out of it. It's not a lifelong decision. It's a temporary thing that they're going through as teenagers. Now, how many of you were teenagers? How many of you didn't like your body when you were a teenager? Yeah, right, okay. So to an extent, dysphoria is very normal. You know, I remember when I was a kid, I used to love to play sports, and then I started growing. I didn't gain any weight, I just grew. You know, and suddenly, you know, here I am, you know. 
my buddies are all going off and playing football on the high school team, and I have to play in the band. You know, and, and you go through this whole, you're just demoralizing. Why? Do you like your body? No. You know what? But you know what? Here I am, 69, and some of the guys who played football, they can't even walk today. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, all right. I'm safe. Now, let's go down to, I want to go down towards the end. I've only got a few minutes. Let's go down to, I, uh, I'll see what page you've got here. Let's go down to uh, page eight in your notes. You guys are pastors. A lot of you are youth pastors. You work with young people. I want to give you some very practical advice because we could sit here all day and we could talk about statistics and numbers and medical procedures and everything else, but it's really not where you're going to live. You're living pastorally. You're looking into the eyeballs of a young man or a young woman that's going through a very tough time. You need to apply the Word of God, not statistics. And I know there's a lobbying force out there, but, you know, we could talk conspiracy all day, but that's not going to fix these kids. You know, it's not. We've got to approach it in a non-argumentative way. We've got to do like Jesus. He took prostitutes and publicans, and he took them out to lunch, and he talked to them. He spent time with them. He got to know the kind of people they were, and guess what? Some of them got changed. They did. And we've got to approach it that sometimes apologetics is just argumentation, and it doesn't win a thing. But we've got a tool that they don't have. It's called the love of God. And love of God doesn't condone, but the love of God accepts. It accepts people. It deals with people. It helps to walk them through until their heads can get on and straight. And look under here on, on, on the page here, and we've got some recommendations for pastors. For as you as pastors, just read through a few of these. First of all, encourage your work, workers now to nurture and support kids that don't fit in. For a lot of people, our favorites are the kids who are good in school, good in sports, they're good, they're good at music, but really Jesus came for the poor. He says, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. I came for the people that needed help, and we have to watch our youth groups and look out for the kids that don't fit in, because they're going to be the first target. They're the ones that are going to be touched by this. Our workers need to get past a focus on behavior and sin issues. They need now to see trans people as real people. Sometimes we get an idea that homosexuals and trans people are just perverts, stark raving perverts. No, a lot of them are just really hurting, extremely hurting. And we'll talk about that in just a minute as we go down. Number three is we need to provide a place that is free from pressure to align now with unbiblical social stereotypes. We have to be careful as youth pastors to not just promote the image of masculinity, which is football, rough, tough. They like to play, you know, war video games and so forth. We have to relate to guys that don't fit into that category. We have to relate to girls now that don't fit into the prissy stuff and the clothes and everything else. No, we're going to have some girls that are going to be a little more competitive, a little more tough and so forth, but yet they're female. We have to know how to relate to them. We've got to get rid of the stereotypes in our mind because if we use stereotypes, we'll drive them into that and we'll repel them, and guess what? They'll fall into the arms of the gay community that will welcome them. That's their only alternative at this point. And so we've got to teach our people how do we relate to those who are a little bit different out there. Our churches need to show love and acceptance to people, the love of Christ. We need to showcase now for saints 
Now, we need to realize, and, and this is true, pastors, we need to brag about our churches. We like everything to look pretty. But really, our church, rather than being a showplace, is a hospital. It's a place where hurting people are coming to get whole. And that's not always pretty. That's all, not always nice. And just as Banning said today, God's not going to ask us how many people we had in our services. He's going to ask us now, how did we help this person that came in? They came and knocked at our door and said, excuse me, I don't want to bother you, but I got some questions. Can somebody answer my questions? That's what they need. We need to come down, and we, our world is producing fractured, lonely people. They often live isolated lives, and them coming to your youth group may be the last thing that they do before they do something really crazy. They need to find a place that will at least accept them. And then lastly, the last one, number eight down there, is we have to be involved. We have to realize that we're involved in a spiritual conflict. This is not just hormones. This is not just social media. There are spiritual forces that are out there that are banging on our kids. They're yelling at them, they're lying to them, they're screaming at them, and so forth. And we have to pray. We have to pray for these kids that those voices will not be louder than the voice of God that says, I accept you, and so forth. And these are things that we can make sure we do at our level. Now, we've only got them for a couple hours a week. What we have to do then is we have to encourage our parents, and that's your next section there. Uh, as young people, I know in my classes I, I do... Uh, case study, I do role play, I'll give some of my classes a, a situation and they have to role play like they're a youth pastor in a church and this situation has emerged in their youth group. And so one of the things I ask them to do is this, here's your problem, the first thing I want you to do is figure out what are your assets. And so they'll come through and it says, well, we got this much of a budget for our youth ministry. We can get these kinds of publications. We have PowerPoint. I think we can do some YouTube videos. And they go through and I let them talk. And at the end, they say, okay, that's it. And I said, you forgot one of the most important assets you've got. What's that? The parents of our kids. You get your kids for a couple hours a week. They have them for a lot of the rest of the time. You need to bring your parents on board. You need to educate your parents. You need to talk to them about how they relate to their kids. Because some of those parents, if they had a bad home, they don't know how to raise these troubled kids. They don't even know how to live their own life. And now they've got a teenager that wants to transition over. You're going to have to do some stuff at times with your parents. Encourage them. Tell them, hey, you're the parent. Come on. You're in a unique position. God has put you here. And sometimes you're going to have to learn to say yes and drop your stereotypes. Daddies, if you've got a son who is atypical, and he doesn't want to play football, and he doesn't go and go duck hunting with you on the weekends, it's your job to raise him as a man the way he is. Because if you don't accept your son as a man, he will try to find somebody else that will. You've got to realize that your stereotypical image now has got to go. Raise the child God has given you. But their values, then help them. They don't like themselves. Have you given them a good reason not to? We need to teach our parents how to love unconditionally. Love the child you were given at this point. And so we go through and we see some of the things down here. Affirm their role and everything else. Hey, you're the parent. For a minute, I'm counseling you all. You're the parents. Your job by God is not to be your child's friend. It's to be their parent. 
Too many parents are afraid to say no to things because they're afraid they won't like me. You're not there to be liked. You're there to raise them. Don't be afraid of their opinion. Don't become a people pleaser at this point. You get the values that God wants, and in love, you may have to say, you know, I can say this personally. I had somebody very close to me, beautiful young teenage girl. She wanted to get changed. Not sexually, but she wanted cosmic surgery to change it and everything. She says, I'm just ugly. She wasn't, but it's one of those weird ideas that they get in their head. And I said, finally, I realized that if, if I came on too strong, I'm going to lose my, my right to speak into her life. So I said, sweetheart, why don't we do this? Why don't you hold off until you're 18? At 18, if you still feel this way, then I will walk through some things and see what we can do. You know what? About 16, she got gorgeous, and all the guys were going, ah, you know, and there were, you know what? By the time she got to be 18, it was a non-issue. <laughs> it didn't exist. It's just those awkward moments in time when certain things aren't developing and whatever, you know, and you go through it. You've got to deal with it. Encourage and admonish the parents here, here. Teach them to not be overprotective. Sometimes parents overprotect their kids, and what they do is end up driving them right into the jaws of the unexpected. They're going to grow up with the world. Take them by the hand and walk them through that. Tell, tell them how to see things and how to make discretionary decisions as they go along the way. We cannot stop our kids from facing the world, but we can help them face the world that's there. And so walk through it with life. Take those teaching moments. Remember one day I was driving down the street with my oldest son, and he was 11 years old. We went by, and there was a young person, and they were there. There was a couple of them hanging out in the corner, and they were just all doing their stuff. And I, and I said, okay, God, help. And I said, I looked at him, and I said, Jace, look at those kids over there. Do they look happy? And he says, Dad, they really don't. Hmm. Then would you live any differently? He says, yeah, I probably would, because I don't want to end up there. They're yelling, and they're cursing. They're fighting with each other. I don't want that kind of life then what could we do to avoid that? And use things like that as teaching moments in the life and teach your parents how to take advantage of those moments because every once in a while, they'll just plop in your lap. It's right there. And you say, what do I do? And God says, love your kid and walk them through it. All right, help them to see it. I know our time's almost up. They're going to come and knock at the door. People are applauding them next door. Go to the end of your notes. The end of your notes, what I've given you here is some reading recommendations, and I'd like to really highlight two of them for you. If you're readers, if you're working with young people, these are two. Number one is this. It's by Nancy Piercy. It's a book that was written probably about three and a half years ago and so forth. It's called Love Thy Body. Nancy Piercy is a prolific writer. She deals with philosophy. She's a strong Christian lady. She's written a number of books with Chuck Colson. They've co-authored some books on philosophy, worldview, things like that. But this whole book is about this. The reason why people get into a lot of moral trouble, since she deals with the hookup culture, she deals with uh, you know, kids experimenting with all kinds of different forms of sex and so forth, everything else, the gay and lesbian, the transitional and everything else, she says, what is behind most of these people, these young people, is they don't love their body. They don't love the body that God has given them. And so she goes through her 
material is amazing. How many have read her book? Now, this is amazes me because this is one of the best books on the market you're going to find. It's a short little book. It's really good. She does not come across harsh. She comes across as a very gentle woman, but she comes across with the strength of Scripture and science behind her. It's a great book, especially if you're counseling some. This is what you can expect to happen. This is what will take place. Another one is the last one on there, Leonard Sachs. He writes a book called Why Gender Matters. Now, Leonard Sachs, he's the guy that's been involved for 30 years as an MD and a clinical psychologist and so forth. He has written two other books, uh, Girls Adrift, Boys on the Edge. And he's talking about what happens in young men and young women when they get to the edge and they cross over into very self-destructive behaviors. But he wrote a book called Why Gender Matters. And in there, what he's going to make, and this is an unpopular point of view, it's this. Boys and girls are different. And he's going to talk about the differences, and he's going to talk about abnormality and atypical boys and atypical girls and what parents can do to raise them. Very, very good information in there. It's very readable. It's easy to as a national bestseller for a while and so forth. So I've tried to give you some sources that you can read. I've tried to give you some suggestions on how parents and pastors can both begin to create a new environment to love these kids that God's going to bring to us and so forth. So God bless you guys. Take it. Let's go save some kids. All right. Can I say one last thing to you? In your treasure box that you got with all the little gifts we gave you guys is a sheet of paper that will give you a QRF, and you can get access to this book. It's in there. This book was written by our hermeneutics class up at the college. The students designed it. They painted it. They wrote it and everything else. I gave them an assignment because most of them have never had any contact with transgenderism. I said, this is your generation. Study it figure out. So this was written by our PBC students. It's a free gift. You can go through, you can download it. It's got medical stuff. It's got pastoral stuff. It's got psychological stuff. Yeah, and even one of our students painted the cover. All right, it's cool. All right. <laughs>